If you guys clicked on this, you already know what the title is. This is an episode about diversity and inclusion in the tech industry. So our guest is someone we've already had on. Her name is Courtney Greer, and she talked to us previously about everything she's learned as a project manager and a scrum leader at Microsoft. But in addition to that, she's also a Black LGBTQ woman in the tech industry. She's also a really good friend of mine. So I've had a lot of conversations with her about how the industry can do better and you know, we just felt like this is something that we want everyone to hear what she has to say and hear other ways that they can be allies and, and help the world be more fair, at least in their pocket of the world in the tech industry. So this episode is going to be a bit different, but I think it's going to be just as interesting. Um, and I think it's going to be just as insightful. Courtney has so much to say about this topic. So let's get into it. So Courtney, thank you for coming back, our first recurring guest. I'm so excited and proud to be you should be recurring. Yeah, you should be. Your first episode was really good and did a uh, big number. It's our number one episode so far. That means people like their voice, which I never know. You know, you don't like your own voice, so. <laughs> so just to start with, you know, over the past year, many Americans have been awakened to the ways that people of color and especially black people are discriminated against, not given equal opportunities and are not given voices in many institutions in this country. Lots of industries have recognized this and trying to make improvements. And you have a firsthand insight that Vasant and I will never have as you're a black LGBTQ woman in tech. So do you feel like the tech industry has the same issue that so many other industries in America do? I would say yes. And I would actually say like capital yes, which is like hard to hear. It's an uncomfortable truth where it is an industry that like addressed it a very long time ago. They were saying like, hey, there is a big gap. Like even through college, I was understanding that people were saying, no, we need to focus on getting minority students involved in STEM technologies. But the, but the sad reality is, is that it's like a really deep history. And unfortunately, if it's so rooted and it's so such a long history to unpack, it gets harder. And what I'm talking about is just within tech, like even though we're making this big push and we're trying to do changes, like the majority of people that are involved in tech and involved in senior positions are white men or kind of Asian men in general, like in a lot of other tech forms. So because that is still there and it's rooted there, there's like a, a smaller, of course, population of people, of minority people that are coming into tech. And people always say like, oh, there's just not enough people to hire. But that's not the case. Like, what are we doing systematically to keep people there in their jobs and looking at like black retention inside of tech? That's a problem that still is still an issue today and making people feel comfortable inside of tech if they are a person of color or a woman. It's still like problems that we see in the media still where we hear about harassment, sexual harassment in the workplace and people not actually facing real consequences against it. And we still are seeing those issues. And so it's a really big problem, yes. And although we're making a lot of progress and this is an industry that's actually addressing it, putting out data points to show what they're doing, the numbers are still low. And it's still like, it's something that we have to talk about and have to be uncomfortable around and keep kind of making mistakes and keep getting effort. And so I say capital yes, because like, although we're, we're going towards the right thing, we're still have a lot of setbacks and we're still making a lot of like sideway paths that we just don't want to stop that momentum. And so we're like on a route, but it's still, it's still the reality is, is that it's a very male white dominated field. And we're still seeing low numbers of people getting even invested into it at an early age, which means it's going to, that problem is still going to keep repeating. Some people characterize this as just a pipeline problem where it's, there's a not, not enough women or people of color applying to jobs and mm -hmm. they don't touch on retention. Can no, you explain the retention issue? Yeah. And it goes into this idea of like, so they say, okay, yeah, we hired, like we just hired a hundred you know, African-American people to the job. Cool, you brought them in. And then when you're talking about like, are you promoting them? Are you giving them equal pay? Are you making them feel like unique individuals? Not saying like we hired them in and then, you know, we're training them to act like the us. We're training them to be like us. We're not addressing kind of their needs as individuals. We're just putting them at a seat to work. We're not inviting them to the main conversations. I know you have like back channel conversations, meaning like you just catch up with a buddy during lunch and you're talking about real ideas and real movements inside of your industry and you're leaving out people. They just look different from you. So it was actually like in 
behaviors that are inside of the work environment aren't solved just by hiring a bunch of people in because the minority group isn't gonna come in and just be like, oh, we're changing everything, we're doing this. No, usually they're gonna often take the back seat just because they feel like imposters when they first walk in the door and they're like kind of afraid of retaliation, afraid of being the first person to speak up because they're gonna get a bunch of eyes that look back to them that either like ask them for a ton of advice and overwhelm them or don't want anything to do with that conversation, feel it's uncomfortable, and then don't want them near them anymore. And so it's not enough to just hire a bunch of people in. It's just changing the behaviors of the people around and making them feel as included as everyone else in a very unique and authentic way. Like just being themselves and not, there's like a meme going around, like when I was first hiring that like a lot of Black people use where they like, they go to work and as soon as they leave work, they shed their skin and they become their real selves. Like that adds <laughs> so much pressure to a person if they have to change their right. whole identity to walk into the office, watch how they say, like make sure their dialect matches their counterparts. It adds so much pressure that they can't even like think of their job and do their job accurately. It's like so much more stress and so much more tax on a person than just showing up as you are. And so the more that a work environment can allow people to show up as they are and encourage that behavior, it leads to better retention. And also just like, it leads to just better innovation, which has been proven with like the accurate and the right hiring of minority people into offices. And, and I actually wanted to get your take on this recent trend, I think that we're seeing in tech and specifically in startups. So um, I'm sure you guys heard about what's happened with Coinbase. So I think like a few months ago, Coinbase came out, <clears throat> I guess it's like a few months before they IPO'd, obviously, they came out with this all-encompassing internal policy that employees could not touch on politics, religion. And there was a certain number of topics that they straight up just outlawed. And they were like, there's really no uh, room for conversation here. This is a business organization. We're here to conduct business and we're here to create this great product, et cetera. They had a lot of uh, blowback. I think unanimously Silicon Valley is like, I don't want to work at Coinbase. Coinbase is going to see a lot of turnover. Employees are going to leave to, to a company that's going to give them the opportunities, uh, opportunity to at least talk about politics and and I guess whatever it is they, that they really uh, care about. But then you fast forward three months, Coinbase has a spectacular IPO and all that criticism sort of went out the door. But then this last month we saw Basecamp, which is a much smaller company, they're just uh, 60 employees. And they implemented the exact same policy that Coinbase did at the end of the week, they had lost 33 people. They all, they all, they mass quit. And I thought that was really fascinating. I guess my question is how, what's the difference here? What is the right thing to do? If you are conducting a business, are employees expected to come in every day and do what is expected of them as given in the details of their job? Or are they allowed this room to also talk to their uh, coworkers about things outside of the scope of their work? Yeah. And it's been said for a while about like, don't bring up politics at work. Don't bring up that kind of your sexual orientation at work. Don't do this. And like, if you think back to like, why not? It's so weird. Like it's certain topics, but like, I don't know if the Pope made a weird announcement, like really odd announcement, like that people wanted to talk about. They really, they probably would. They'd bring it into work. If the president kind of did some type of weird thing, tweeted something weird, they do bring it into work. It's usually what they're talking about when they say like, don't bring politics is usually topics that they're uncomfortable with or topics that are kind of going to shake the foundation or shake anything that's going to be happening into, in the work that's going to make leadership not know how to react, right? They're usually not saying, don't talk about like that big story that came out in um, the Times today. They're usually talking about like, let's not bring this heavy news into here because it's going to burden all of us. It's going to it's gonna make that white guilt feeling kind of weigh us all down today. And so we're seeing this trend where a lot of young people, and I feel like we've um, seen some of the numbers, a lot of young people like want their company to take a stance on things. And they actually want people to start talking about this at work. I think a lot of stories that have come up are just like, when I was graduating college and was in, or was in uh, college, that's when the Trayvon Martin was first shot. And, and it, that story hit really hard for a lot of people. Like Trayvon Martin looked like my younger brother. So to like actually have that realization and start to think about that, it's very hard to then just go to school and be like, okay, I'm smiling. No one's talking about this because it is at the back of my mind. And as soon as I leave on my Facebook feed and my Instagram and Twitter, that's all I see. And so to not have a place to go and talk about that 
and go talk to a colleague and just put on a bright face, like that actually, that does a lot for your mental health and to try to keep a smile on and not break down at work is a lot. And so not allowing your employees to have that space, it leads to a lot of burnout. It leads to like a lot of emotional burnout of your employees. And it comes to that conversation of more of like, if you can have people show up well, like mentally well, show up full as a human being and allow them space to kind of grieve or process until they are full in a work environment. Like you get happy employees that are actually like contributing to the company culture in a much much more productive way. And so we're seeing a, a trend that I feel like in the new hiring and recruiting phase, we're gonna have to face that. A lot of the old ways are gonna have to go away around that conversation because employees actually, like young employees want people, their company to take a stance now. Like they will leave if they don't agree with the policy. And I know that, you know, they wanna take a bipartisan view. They don't wanna lean left or right when it comes to politics. But a lot of young employees are actually, like they say, I will work for a company that follows my models and my views and I'll follow that company if, if that counts. So it's a risky play. A lot of people are saying like, oh, if we do that, we'll lose this, this amount of company. But I even say like just opening up those conversations and having them is going to lead to better retention in the workplace. And it's going to lead to more productive, like a, a productive conversations that are going to change the behaviors in your workplace that we sure. talked about, you know, at the beginning of the call. The other thing is, you know, employees, especially young people should realize how desperately companies need them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We are not a throwaway talent. Like just kind of getting your degree and studying something for four years isn't something that, you know, employees are taking lightly. And especially now that the numbers and metrics are coming out and people are investing accordingly, like minority talent leads to innovation. Now, people are saying that that is a direct thing. If you can have more people and more diverse perspectives in an innovation meeting in a think tank meeting, they're bringing their individual problems, problem statements and solutions to the table that if you were just in this bubble, you would not know and be able to solve with before. So it's kind of being able to even like go into new markets and solve issues that people care about that are coming to the table. And it's not even just like putting new products out there and making more money. It's actually making and ch- making changes in, that, in their culture, in their communities that they wanna see made and creating products that are gonna just better and uplift our community as a whole. And it just starts with bringing the right people and bringing different people to the table for those conversations as well. And so we're seeing that direct correlation and companies want that. They're like, yes, we have to have those people there. We have to have them. We have to have them happy and healthy, and we have to give them space to have those conversations, so that we can kind, of, we can not just help our bottom line, but we can, as like Microsoft, they say, we want to help. We want to help. We want to help every organization and every person achieve more. So every if we if we can't talk to every person, if we can't understand what every person's problem is authentically and uniquely, you know, how are we going to help? It's going to be a blind effort to go in and help if we can't do that. I've been in a lot of product development meetings where it was just so obvious that we were getting levels of innovation that would have been impossible if we didn't have people from different countries, people from different hometowns, people from different backgrounds, all contributing their viewpoint in how we should develop this product. So scale that up and put that across corporate America. How much, how many orders of magnitude of innovation are we missing out on? Are we leaving on the table? Yeah. 100%. I feel like we've also seen the reverse where the same people are at the table and they miss certain things. It's not even in tech. I think the latest, like my, my favorite thing or not favorite, it was just kind of the funny thing of like, I think Gucci, like they put out a product that was a new sweater and it obviously like had blackface on it. And if we were just like, if they just had like one black person at that meeting, and it's not even just that they could have had one black person at the meeting, but a person who felt Um, empowered at work to speak up because it could be one person who acts as that representative, but is so like fearful of being retaliated against that if they say something, they just stay quiet too. But just like one person would have said, hey, this is not a good idea (laughs) and stopped a huge, huge PR nightmare for them. And we see that a lot through different industries and it's a little more harmful sometimes in technology when we're starting to build products that influence the world. Like a lot of baseball stadiums use facial recognition to like, if they ban someone, they wanna be able to scan and see like, oh, that person's coming in. Well, if you don't train your algorithm to have more black faces, to have more Asian faces, you're kind of starting to blend and it might actually target someone who 
isn't the person you are. And it might do that multiple times and cause a very dangerous situations. Like if for say the cop is called because they don't know they're trying to explain themselves that they're not it. Like that's just something so small that you think like, oh, if a person of color was there and could offer an insight into, hey, we need to train more because our features, like skin color is, is not the only feature we need to train for you're able to eliminate that. And that's just code bias. And you can see that in different industries as well. Yeah, I also, I honestly just wanted to highlight, I think two really interesting points that you made. Earlier, you suggested that maybe having an organization that's publicly leaning either right or left could actually be a competitive advantage when it comes to recruiting, which I think is really fascinating. I'm sure at the Google level or like at the Facebook level or Microsoft level, they could really not be leaning either side just because they're you know international organizations and whatnot. But if you're like a hundred person organization, I could see that 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 could make sense uh, from a hiring perspective. And the other thing I want to pick up, you effectively described what covering is earlier, which is showing up to work and not being able to you know share some sort of experience that you had or really be your true self. Could you describe what covering is? Yeah. So covering, like you just stated so wonderfully, there is kind of when you cover up certain parts of your identity so that you can feel safe at work. So I am a black woman, as also an LGBT woman at work. And usually I'm just like, oh, I got three buckets already in the minority scale. So sometimes I, I definitely felt in my first job, like it was kind of this thing, I don't wanna to be too black, or I don't wanna to be too gay, or I don't wanna be too feminine at work. And those are three things. And the more I started to cover, the less I felt there at work, the felt less connection I felt with my coworkers because I really couldn't be authentically myself. And I noticed that a lot of my friends were people outside of work and they look completely different from my coworkers. And I felt much more detached from work just because I wasn't showing up as myself. And so covering can be as simple as for women, not talking about their children, not talking about their want to become mothers because they feel like, oh, they won't be promoted and they won't be paid enough because the company is going to be like, oh, she's going to go on maternity leave anyway. For an LGBT uh, man, it might be just not talking about his boyfriend. I've had an example where a manager like just assumed that I had a boyfriend and was just like, oh yeah, but with your boyfriend, you can do this. And although like it could have not been a malicious statement, he's just coming from his own experience. It made me cover. It made me just be like, oh, he probably is, wouldn't be comfortable if I did talk about my girlfriend. So I'm just not going to bring it up anymore. And that detaches me from him actually knowing more about me and understanding more of me as an authentic person. And so when we cover at work, and I kind of touched on intersectionality as well, just because I overlap a lot of my identities, it's just kind of holding back an identity just because you fear either you're just going to be looked at different, or you're not going to fit in with your peers. And as it is showing that the more people cover, the more they detach from work and retention is affected as well, because if you can't show up as yourself, at a place where you spend eight hours a day for five days a week, you're just going to feel less happy and less fulfilled in that role. And you're going to go somewhere that you fit in a little bit more. And unfortunately, what that causes then is people go where they fit in more and they start to go to places that are identical and everyone looks the same. And then we come into this problem diversity as well. And it's not possible for a lot of people to go to a company where everyone looks like themselves. So then where do they fit in? Do they switch industries? Do they go somewhere, or they just stick where they are and keep their head down and not actually try to strive for leadership roles. It's all affected in that way. I think, no, I think you bring up a great point because Faraz and I have this conversation all the time. Where do we draw the line in terms of what is politics? Is diversity politics or is diversity just diversity something that exists in everyday life? Is it just because some something people, gets Yeah, for some people, some people might say it's politics, but other people might say, that's my life. That's you just know? my life. Yeah, I'm just trying to live. <laughs> right. I'm trying to live. And, and like a lot of people will tie diversity into like when they, you take an action or a government action out of it. Like a lot of people had a problem back in the day with affirmative action because they're like, this is reverse racism. Like politics have brought in reverse racism. They're taking my job, quote unquote, because someone that was a privilege for them to have it. And so they kind of link the two just because they feel like it's out of their control, which sometimes is linked into kind of the way that politics is and you have to vote for this. Well, yeah, a lot of people are just like, no, this is just my life. Like, I'm trying to be myself at work. I'm trying to make sure it's a safe place for me to go at work. 
And then like, I definitely think it's double politics sometimes when you talk about like immigrants and people that like work in the US that aren't from the US and people that don't speak the um, English as their first language and they're trying to assimilate and trying to become someone else. And so when they're talking about Western politics and they have like, like a politician has a say over whether they get to stay here or not, like it does become like a quote unquote political matter, but it's really just for a lot of people just about existing. Yeah, for some people. I think one thing which is very interesting about covering is that this is something which affects you even if you're not a minority. Yeah. So I remember I in my senior year of call of, of high school, my senior year of high school, I took a civics class and our teacher said that protection of minority rights and minority beliefs w- is useful to even the most selfish person, even if all you care about is yourself you will have some belief that is a minority belief. And if that, and if the ability to express minority beliefs is not protected, everyone is harmed. Yeah, and we can't grow as a society if we can't take in new perspectives and we can't allow those new perspectives to just go into people's ear, go and think about it and be talked about and even you know celebrated. Like we will not advance as a society if those things aren't brought to life and there's not a space for that to be shown. And like I said, work takes up so much time of your day, like not to be able to be yourself authentically in a place where you're supposed to be making a wage and making support for your family. It's a lot, it's very stressful to start to slip away your identity at a place that means so much and has so much impact um, to you and to the economy and everything, you know? Are there uh, ever any examples of where, where the majority population within a group has to cover? Mm. It's not as common. It's just not as common because usually, you know, once you get around people that look like you or are like you, you kind of just relax a lot more. When I'm at home with my family or back home, family reunions and things, and people just look and act the way I do, it just feels like, oh, here I am. I'm doing my thing. I'm walking around. Hi, auntie. What's up? How are you doing? Like, it's very just relaxing and you feel calm and at ease in the minute that you walk into an environment that doesn't seem like you and people start talking and you can see that they're connecting and you're just not making the same references or making the same statements. You start to just take a back seat by reaction. It's like more of an initial thing that happens that you really can't even control. And so it could totally happen. And a lot of people cover just because they look passing. I don't know if you've heard that, like, a transgender, a transgender man, you might not know he's transgender, transgender, and so he might pass as a cis man. And so a lot of people might project things onto him or, you know, he might be able to like get the privileges of a white man, a cis white man, just by existing. But he is covering because maybe he won't speak about that just because people already have assumed and he can't bring his transgender ideas, beliefs, stories to life and get help with things such as healthcare when it comes to a work environment. He can't raise issues because he feels like automatically he had to cover just because he passes and people have those projections onto him. So there's a lot of intricacies when it comes to covering and how people do it. A lot of people cover in like, just like they're saying, like their religion, like to assume everyone is a Christian and that they want off for Christmas and things like that, which we used to do. Like people, people will take a back seat and not talk about whether they're Buddhist or or a Hindu or, or, you know, they are atheists and they just don't want to make a fuss and thus they can't bring that to the table and people can't learn from you. Like my favorite thing is talking to someone who's so different from me and just listening to them, understanding where they come from, because it's just a new story that I haven't heard before. And it just brings my perspectives into so much of a different view. And part of allyship, as we start to talk about, is just really putting yourself into someone's shoes and understanding how they want to be treated and supported. And so if we can do that and just kind of open up and allow spaces for people to authentically come to the table, like you're just learning and growing yourself as well when it comes to even like the most selfish person in the world can grow just from someone else's viewpoint. One conversation, if they, if everyone's guard is down and they're allowed to be their most unique self. Can you expand on allyship? Yeah, 
yeah, allyship is just a helping hand. <laughs> it's the simplest form. A lot of people are talking about allyship and work is like now that the conversation and we understand what we are as a society, we've woken up after a lot of people have woken up after in the murder of George Floyd last year. A lot of people reached in with like, how can I help? How can I help proactively? There's right ways to help in these situations and there's wrong ways to help. And I want to be there and helping. Allyship is just, like you said, as a person who has certain amount of privileges, offering a hand and allowing a space for someone who doesn't have these privileges to exist and, and grow inside of a company that we're talking about in tech. I think like at our company, we describe allyship as someone like or the way that you can be a better ally is just first is just being brave. A lot of people want to be or want to be allies, but they want to be careful and they want to tiptoe as well. And they're really afraid to make mistakes. Allies aren't afraid to make mistakes. A lot of tech companies are want to put their messaging out there, be on top and never want to have another PR disaster and byproduct. They play safe all the time and they kind of tiptoe around issues. And part of the like, I don't know, beauty of allyship and beauty of growing as a person is just making mistakes and having people correct you and not making it such a big deal. Just like if you use someone's or you misuse someone's pronoun and then they say, oh no, you know, he, him, then they're like, oh, oh, I didn't know. Okay. Yes. Let me know. Now I know to support you. And now if someone else comes into me in a conversation and starts talking about you and uses the wrong pronoun, like I will, as an ally, step in and correct them because that's what I'm doing. And I'm learning from you in the moment. And so an ally is like, is brave. They're courageous. They listen and they proactively want to help someone who doesn't have the same privileges as them. It can be not like another example of allyship, which we've been noticing is like, now that we're in remote work, before we weren't, we had people that were working in East Coast, but the whole office was in the, the West Coast. And so in meetings, you'd have that one person who remote, that one person always gets talked over, <laughs> one person never really feels included. And so like one way of allyship is like just to have a proctor next to the computer that they can ping and you can ask questions on behalf of them. It's a very small example, but it's just saying like, we are going to intentionally put some behaviors that I want to practice so that you feel included and safe in the environment. And so an ally is always working to get there. And there's a lot of talk tracks on like how to be a good ally because a lot of people just want to go in and play the hero without checking, right? They want to just go in and say, no, you're wrong. Like you hurt this person's feelings and you can't do that and you're racist. And this is what we have to do without even checking for the person who might've been harassed or been the aggressor. And so a good ally isn't just a person who yells the loudest, it's the person that actually puts themselves in their shoes, goes and checks on that person and says, how can I help? And if you don't want to talk about it, that's okay. But how can I do the work within myself to help and better my community, my organization in an impactful way? I love that example of having the person by the computer right? to make sure that they're listened to. Exactly. Because I feel like, so to me, one of the most one of the most impactful philosophies that I've ever read is this concept of Kaizen. So it comes from Japanese manufacturing and essentially Kaizen is constant improvement. If you accumulate small 1% improvements by every day, by the end of the year, you'll be like 10,000% better, something crazy like that. And yeah. I think this is an example. How this can you do Kaizen and allyship or inclusion? This is totally example because we can't expect everyone to be the same bar when it comes to diversity and inclusion. A lot of people... This is maybe the first conversation openly that they're having. And before they had it in their head, maybe they wanted to help. Maybe they wanted to make these mistakes, but were very afraid of bringing politics, bringing the conversations and afraid of offending people. And now we're saying like, we're having this space where we're having these conversations where you can check your assumptions by making mistakes, by asking these questions. And if you allow me to have the voice to correct you and you don't get offended, like you're not like, oh, I'm not racist. You just say, oh, wait, you were hurt by this. What happened? Can you, can I, can I learn from you? Let me, be, let me see your perspective on things and see how I can change my behavior and just want a, a small change. Like I said, of just recognizing someone's pronouns. You got it wrong. You don't feel like terrible guilt about it. You're not going to go follow that person, send them roses and go make sure that like you pamper them every step of the way. You're just like, Oh, let me check my assumptions. Let me figure out like internally why that happened to me. And now I'm going to be better going forward. And so that's what we have to do. And it's like, it's not a win or lose game. Like there's a lot of work that I'm doing with diversity and inclusion within myself. Like I would not say I'm an expert in any way. I'm a voice that has a perspective. And then I'm learning from people like myself, 
I'm learning from other women. I'm learning from other African-American women, other LGBTQIA plus people. And that's just part of my mission as a human is just to listen to people, get better, be courageous, and not be afraid to make those mistakes when it comes to just trying to be a better person. Right. And I think you guys both made a great point for why uh, behavior needs to change at the lowest levels, at the employee level. If we had to switch topics and focus a little bit more on what can organizations do at the C-suite level or at the executive level? And I I think historically we've seen like policies be put in place or they've created groups or internal sort of overseeing committees that, you know, they they try to do some things. What do you think is the best approach at the C-suite level? Yeah. And We've seen a lot where we're seeing a lot more CEOs step in and say, hey, this is my stance on it. This is how we want to help. And it's great. It's nice that we're seeing a lot of talk. And I think they call it lip service when people are just talking a lot and we're not seeing actions that actually trickle down or we're seeing actions be put on the minority group, meaning they're doing all the effort. They're doing all the grassroots campaigning and policies are supposed to make a difference. When really the change comes from both sides and a lot of it is heavy on the C-suite. It's actually around like, if you're saying we want to better diversity, let's see metrics, let's see some goals and let's see a plan to get there, which we see with a lot of other strategies. When you have a feature rollout and you're saying, okay, we wanna grow this feature or we wanna grow the metrics of users on this feature and this is how we're gonna do it. You can do that with diversity and inclusion too. And it's a lot of work. It's a big step, which is why it's kind of hard to take that plan. And then when you add intersectionality in it too, people are just double confused on how we're going to tackle that. But it's around, if we can see a C-suite level executive put a plan in motion and just say, hey, we're going to do something and here's how we're going to do it. That means a lot. And they have the power to start to make that work. We're seeing examples of people hiring diversity and inclusion officers but not giving them any power, putting them underneath HR that barely has any power or influence with executives. And people are saying, no, that person should report to the CEO. That person should have influence on how the CTO works. They should have conversations with product groups and understanding biases and like training them on that. It shouldn't be a one-off unconscious bias training. And then the, the the diversity and inclusion officer is speaking at a bunch of events. No, they should actually be partnering with the executives to make changes that are going to trickle down. And then on top of that, what we're seeing and what we like to continue to see is that other executives are working with each other. They're they're setting inclusion acts as an industry. They're setting standards of how they want to go forward across, across the industry as a whole and collaborating on diversity and inclusion efforts as well. Microsoft just did a diversity and inclusion inclusion conference where the first day was open to all of our partners in the community. So it was everyone could go and listen to, you know, all of the reporting that we've done. They could share. We had other organizations sharing and we had leaders and executives talking openly throughout each other's doors around the mistakes that they've made, what they're learning, what our metrics are, and brainstorming with other diverse leaders of how we're going to make these changes. And so We want to see the conversation. We want to see action more than just talk and saying, we support Black Lives Matter. What are you doing? What are the changes? And is this going to fade away as soon as we're all done with this phase in 10 years? Are we going to see the number of Black employees stay settled or only increase Um, when it comes to VCs? Are we going to see the actual investment in the Black community into Black founders or into women founders? We want to see your plan for that work. And we actually want to see that momentum and hold you accountable uh, to what we're seeing as well. Actually, I'm glad you brought up sort of the Black VC community. I came across this really interesting organization the other day. It's called the Black Venture Institute. I don't know if you've heard of that. No, I haven't heard of them. So there's this sort of trend now where we have a lot of these short 10-week sort of boot camps. And I guess... Black Venture Institute runs some, some of these boot camps. They attract uh, Black people that are interested in entering the VC industry. And then they run master classes where they bring in uh, really, you know, well, well-renowned VCs and whatnot to teach them the ropes, uh, get them in the industry, you know, build networks. I think that's a perfect example of what you And that described. sounds like allyship. That sounds like actively going, here's my privilege. Here's my experience. Let me sh- share it with you. Let me not give you a roadmap to say, oh, this is my idea. You guys can take it and do what you want. But you're saying like, Let me train you with the skills that I've had such a long history, you know, of training in and let me go and share them to you. It's inside of companies we're saying like, let's actively mentor people in an authentic way. And that's a wonderful example of how they're saying, okay, 
we see the we see the diver. I think I saw the metric of like black female or I think point zero there were point zero zero six black female founders or invest that got like over a million dollars of funding. I think either last year or the year before that. And so just like how do we address that problem? Because that's a problem. It's not that there are no black women founders. Like they're not getting the training. They don't have that information available to them and those resources. And so that's a wonderful example of how you're seeing that problem in the community and an active way to go in as an ally to help and improve. Sure. Yeah. And I'll actually on the topic of uh, encoded bias and also the C-suite and what, what executives are trying to do, I came across a really interesting anecdote that Eric Schmidt gave. Eric Schmidt, for those that don't know, was the CEO of Google, and he actually joined in the really early days. And he was explaining hiring when they're blitzscaling Google. So they're going from like 100 employees to like 10,000 in, in a two-year period or three-year period. So it's just ridiculous. Yeah. How do you hire the right people, et cetera? And the scale that they came up with is three or four interviewers would go and interview the candidate, and each of them would give a number between one to five, five being the best and you know one being the worst. And then they'd average it. And then if it hit, I think like even in some cases, they'd even hire people that averaged like a 2.5 or three just because they're growing so fast. And then what they would do to see if their original calculation was actually correct is give them a number after a year into their tenure at Google and see and compare it back to when they first hired them, right? So how did they perform in the past year? What, what did the same five people that interviewed them give them now? And what they found is that unanimously women were being undercounted or getting underscored on average when they were being hired. And then a year later, they're performing way better than the score they were given on the yeah. interview, interview day. And I think that's like, and, and that's sort of the bias that people would have never agreed that they had, had you asked them a year earlier when they were interviewing people. Like, I'm not, I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm not going to uh, show any bias against women. I'm not showing any bias against this minority, but the fact of the matter is it's encoded and we ourselves are not aware of this bias. So mm -mm. it's, it just seems like such a tough problem to bring to like people are stubborn people are they ignorant in some cases it seems like a very hard educational problem yeah and then on top of that it's like the cognitive bias as well that people usually go for the information that aligns with their belief and that's like more strong if you only have friends that like agree with you or you only around co-workers that have your same belief pattern and so like unconscious bias is like now that like you become aware of it and you start to have those conversations at work and you're like, we talked about being brave and checking your assumptions. It's an active practice that you have to do and start to model every single day. And so a lot of more of actionable things you can do in those hiring rounds is making sure it's a diverse panel of people, making sure that there's double checks on those panels. It's not like just one or two people calling in a friend and having them hire and kind of do what they need to do, but actually making sure that the representation of people that are hiring are the people that you're trying to get into the company. It's where you're actively looking and are the people, are the communities that you're going to hire in, are the people that are hiring a reflection of those communities if you're targeting, targeting them. So there's ways to kind of make sure that we're checking our unconscious bias with actual policies, but a lot of the work is just internal. It's within, our, within ourselves. It's things that we have learned from so many years and the media has put out and like entertainment has done to our brains that it's like unwiring something that's been in your head for 25, 27 years that we have to actively untrain. It's really, really hard, but you can't like you can't be afraid to start that training and know that it's happening every single day and know that you're going to make mistakes. You're all, you're going to mess up so much, but if you're understanding why and you're making sure that you're coaching and you're under and you're, you're helping people, when you start to coach other people, it helps you realize it as well. I think I talk about this example all the time when it comes to like educating people around you in a productive way. I think the word now people are talking about like council culture versus cancel culture. Meaning like, if you have the energy, I always say, if you have the energy, if you have the wherewithal, if that person isn't worth losing to you and someone says something that might be offensive, someone says something that just like, you don't understand why they said that. And you don't know if they're trying to be malicious. A lot of things you can say, it's like, it's a small, it's just like asking, I wonder why you said that. If someone says, Courtney, your pink shirt looks stupid. You're like, why did you say that? And like, you're not shutting them off. You're not like, you're a pink shirt racist. You're, you're like, why did you say that? And they're like, well, I don't like pink shirts. And you're like, why don't you like pink shirts? Oh, well, someone in eighth grade punched me with the pink shirt. And you're like, okay, what does it have to do with me? Like, <laughs> is that an unconscious bias you have because of a situation that happened personal to you? Okay, like now you recognize that and you're like, oh, 
And then you start to unwire that, but that's just like one small piece of information. It's a continuous practice. But once you understand what that word is and you understand like kind of scenarios of hurt and pain and systematic kind of trauma that it has on people, if you want to take that action to be a better person and start to make those changes, like you have that power to do it, but it's, it's not a, it's not an overnight switch. What I like think a lot of people want it to be to kind of alleviate themselves of the guilt and the pain. They're like, okay, I'm doing better. I took the training. I'm good now, guys. Unfortunately it's not. And when you have a certain amount of privilege as well, it's harder to shake. So let me ask you this. Do you think it'd be progressive for companies to say, if you're going to have a particular type of meeting that is going to affect more than the sort of the represented population within this meeting, you should have X amount of black people or minority or et cetera. I would say like, yeah, you don't have to put a number to it, but it, there better be someone at the table and you better have them, you have better have the space for them there to talk about the issues and ask. You don't have to direct all of your questions to that person, but you should be able to call on them for guidance because the person that's being affected or the people that are being infected and in that community, like you have to talk to them. You have to listen. That's part of being an ally and actually making a change. Like a CEO needs to listen to the issues. It would be the same as if you rolled out a product and you had so many negative complaints about it. Everyone hated that feature and you just kept trugging along. You're like, nope, this is it. We got it. We're not listening to anybody else. We're not taking any consumer feedback. We are just going to keep doing that. You're not going to take a very positive path long-term. And so part of it is like listening to the community that is in pain and you make a mistake or you're trying to do some stuff and all the policies might not work either. And that's okay. Like, don't stop trying. If you have a women's event and you accidentally, like for somehow you put all men on the panel to talk about their experience and everyone's just like, that was, you know, that was awful. Why would you do that? Don't shut down the women's conference. Just do it better next year. Learn and grow from it. So it, yeah. And I forgot the question that we started with, but no, yeah, but, yeah, exactly. I think you answered it, which was, uh, would it be progressive to set limits on, or say exa- specifically, you know, have a, per- a particular person at the table? Exactly. Go to the root of the problem. Don't be afraid to be yelled at, but like that person's probably going to be the angriest too, which is good. Get it out. Let them talk to you about the issue. Don't take it personal or take it an event as, as offense, unless it is personal, then maybe you should take it personal, but just listen. Be there and don't be afraid of that pain because it's not anger maybe towards or directed towards you. It's just pain. People are in pain. People are feel and feel are feeling a lot of discomfort, unfortunately, where they work and where they find passions and joy. And so to actively ignore that and just say like, oh, we're helping without going and talking to that person is very hurtful and very painful. And people know. People can tell when a statement is rolled out and you're just like, that that didn't hit home. That didn't have anything to do with me. And it, it, it makes your trust level so much more worse when you're just gloss over the issue. Yeah, I, actually, I just wanted to share one more story. In the early days of Clubhouse, I remember going, and this really showed me the power of Clubhouse. I go in and there's this ongoing room about the, it was titled like SF is terrible, blah, blah, blah. And that was like the title, SF sucks. And then on the stage were four or five white VCs and they were just going off about SF and all the things wrong with it. And then at some point to the credit of Chesa Bodin, who's the attorney general, I think, or he, oh, he's a DA, sorry. He's a DA, district attorney. He jumps in and he's one of, they were blaming him for a lot of things. He just jumps into the clubhouse and he jumps on stage and he takes them out because he is a trained lawyer to his credit. And so he had great arguments and whatnot. So this entire thing goes on. I'm listening to all this. It wraps up. Boom. It's done. Immediately after it's done, I think it had numbers like 2000 people. Immediately after it finishes, another clubhouse room opens up and it's all the people of color that were not included in the original conversation with, I guess, quote unquote, more powerful people, more influential people. And it's people from Oakland. It's people from SF, people who have been in the Bay Area for generations. You know, they born and brought up in Oakland versus all these people are more like they moved there for their jobs. And they're like, how did they have this entire conversation without any one of us being there on stage when we make up almost half of the population in SF? We've been here far longer than them. We built this city to what it is. We built the, the, the you know, we, we did the work. And I think for me, that was like really insightful because this is the allyship and this is having somebody in the room who can speak for yeah. more than more than pe- people being represented. 100%. And it feels like when you come out of those, you're like, how did someone miss that? You're like, no one thought to put another person, like one person of color on that stage, but it's so easy to miss if you're just in this bubble. If you think you're doing a common good or you're just trying to hit a bottom line, it's so hard to reflect unless you have someone there to check. 
And it's not someone who's like policing you. It's just someone with a different perspective that would see that and be like, hey, the people on this panel that are complaining the most don't actually make up the population. And maybe someone can counter that argument and it might be a better conversation. Like, and that's okay. It's an uncomfortable conversation, but it's something that needed to happen. Yeah, that's a really good example of just like, right over the head, right, <laughs> right over the head. But they, it happened. They do, yeah, they need to listen to this episode after it comes out. And, uh... <laughs> Hope they learn. How about that? We just learn and grow for sure. Yeah, great. So I, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing all of your wisdom with us, Courtney. I think it's been incredibly enlightening and I'm going to take this with me forever. I hope it Anything helps. I'm no expert, by the way. <laughs> I'm no expert. And a lot of times, like I think over this past, like I said, after the murder of George Floyd and everyone kind of jumping on with the Black Lives Matter movement, a lot of minority people in tech and a lot of minority people inside of their industries were kind of forced into the front. I got a lot of people asking me questions and I'm just like, I had to like check my own biases and, and kind of have those conversations with myself too. A lot of that I weren't, wasn't ready for and a lot of like that I had to take the time to go learn because one thing is I'm an educated African-American woman and that doesn't make up the majority of my community either. So even sometimes going and connecting back to my population, like I have a privilege that I don't understand. I'm also an African-American woman who was... Um, born inside of an African-American community, but grew up in a predominantly white community. So I have different biases and I have different privileges and things that I don't understand about someone else's perspective in the African-American community. So I, when I was kind of starting to answer questions and I'm like, wait, I don't make up the makeup everything. I don't have the answers. That's kind of my thing. Like I have my perspective and I like it. I like my perspective. I kind of can share with other people, but definitely having conversations. And I'm just saying like, if you listen to this podcast, like keep talking to other people, go learn from other people, go learn from other as many um, different voices and perspectives that you can. Cause that's how we grow as a society is if we go around people that don't look like us and go learn as much as you can. Cause you can learn from everybody. And that's how I live my life. Everyone has something to learn. Um, yeah, th th yeah. There's a great essay called the invisible knapsack. So that essay is about that essay says that minorities in America are carrying a knapsack are carrying this additional weight yeah. that the majority never has to carry. For example, when you do something as a minority, you represent your entire community. Whereas yeah. if a majority person does something, that's just one individual. You know, yeah. when you speak, you speak for everyone. everyone. When that shouldn't be the default I, assumption. I felt it definitely in college. And it's actually something that I studied in college because it does affect like test scores and things like that. Like I graduated with a class of maybe 80 to 70 people and I was the only black woman and there were three women and I think maybe two other African-American people so like that's in 2017 <laughs> in you know in Ohio so I felt that that like oh if I talk too loud everybody hears and a lot of people and my friends that were there they were just like yeah I grew up in a predominantly white town like you're the first black friend I have you were the first black person I actually had a conversation which is great but also like now they think that all black people act like me, which like isn't the case and they haven't solved their issues yet. Like go talk. And so you feel that pressure. And I definitely had a lot of test anxiety, which is, I don't know if it was linked to that just because like, I love learning. I love teaching people. And my friends always say like, why? Like you teach us everything. Why are your test scores always lower? And I'm just like, I don't know. I have test anxiety. I just don't like the pressure. And so like, it's felt still to this day. And talking about that weight of like you have to do two times the amount of work for just the amount of recognition as everybody else it's very true and it's a lot of pressure and it's a lot of walking into a space and always looking different and trying to control your behavior to make everyone so everyone else uncomfortable or comfortable so it's there and it's financial too they talk about the black tax a lot of people like african-american community don't come to generational wealth and a lot of times when they do get to wealth because of the fact that their parents didn't have it. And a lot of immigrants feel this first-generation Americans as well, that they have to now support themselves and their family above them. And that's a reality for a lot of people like who start in the industry. Like, okay, I got this wonderful paycheck, but now I got to pay for my brother's house and my mom needs help. She has some healthcare problems. And like, even that weight is a black tax that they talk about too. So there's just a lot of work that still needs to be undone, which is why when people say like, our industry is doing well. What do you think we're doing good? It's just like, no one's doing great. Like <laughs> the bar is super low and we have to put that bar up a lot higher. Yeah. So just to wrap things up here, are there any books, any essays, anything that you think people should Google? Oh, actually, let me, can I get a list out real quick? Yes. 
we have it nicely enough. We have like an internal diversity page for my organization and we have a book list. What's the organization? It's com- commercial or commercial software engineering. So the org inside of Microsoft. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Our organization. We do a lot. Like when the Black Lives Matter movement started kicking off, like we had a like Project Rosa as a grassroots project that we started like a lot of African-American employees and it's still going, a lot of great leaders are taking that effort that they were just like, nope, we're sick of this. We're actually gonna start making noise now. And luckily we have a very, our leadership was like very empathetic and like, yes, take the floor. Like, like we're putting ourselves accountable. We're partnering with this organization to like hire more African-American people then have these uncomfortable conversations every month and put this wonderful page That's together. Awesome. So a lot of people recommend like how to be, how to not be, or how to be, let me do this again. So we have examples such as like Lead from the Outside by Stacey Abrams, who's a wonderful activist that you probably heard of during the elections. We have a couple other ones such as Algorithms of Oppression, which is a good textbook for just understanding unconscious bias when it comes to technology. Invisible Women is a wonderful book as well. Automating Inequality is a good book when it comes to tech as well. The Age of Surveillism Capitalism, which is cool. I like that. Yeah, I've read that one. That's really cool. I'm trying to think of other ones as well. There's like, there's a lot of documentaries as well. One of my favorite documentaries watched in college is 13th. That really just shakes you to the world. Like that's just a rough punch in the face of like, oh, this is what's happening. Oh my gosh. Like I did not know. And a lot of people that came to me like, which is like, oh, Courtney, what are some books I can read? I'm just like, we'll start with 13. Go watch that first. And then it's kind of a trickle down for there. An anti-racist reading lists by, there's a list online, Ibram X. Kennedy's list. And it's just a good list of books there that you can kind of start to watch. And a lot of fiction too, which is nice because you can learn cool. from, fiction is just like people writing about their perspectives in a very nice, glamorous way back right. then. But they were having some pretty hard realities. So like The Color Purple, which is one of my favorite books and their eyes were watching God. It's just like a very beautifully told story, just kind of about racism in a way that like the moral of the story generally is just like, be a good goddamn person. (laughs) Right. But so it's cool that that book, that list has a lot of fiction and nonfiction books as well. Cool. Well, these are conversations that we should constantly be having. You know, it's not going to end after one year. It's not going to end after a few laws are passed. It's not even going to end if the minority representation hits some percentage. You know, these are things that we need to constantly improve and grow at. Yeah, and have the conversations with people that don't look like me either. Have them with people people that look like you. Have them at your family dinner. Because a lot of times the conversation is lost when a person of color or an LGBTQIA plus person isn't in the room. And so mm. those need to happen. And you can inform yourself with people like me, but actually like speaking up for someone like me when I'm not in the room is something that really to, needs to happen a lot more. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Courtney. I learned a lot too. No problem. Thanks for having me again. I can't wait for spot number three. I'm not booking myself early, but I am. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll, we'll definitely have you back. Please, yeah, I love talking yeah. to you. That's our episode for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to subscribe to us and rate us on Apple Podcasts. We would really appreciate the support. You can also follow me on Twitter at FZ from Cupertino and Vasant at Next Vasant. See you guys next week.